all around people, powered by PFI Advisors. Hello, and welcome to the 13th webinar in our Insiders Forum virtual event series, live with Matt, with Matt Sonnen, founder and CEO of PFI Advisors, Kaylin Malia of Socius Family Office, and Karen Denise of CapTrust, hosted by Lisa Crapper of BNY Mellon Pershing. Before we get started with today's content, just a few housekeeping notes. The Insiders Forum virtual event series includes 20 plus webinars running through November. Don't miss our next webinar in the series this Thursday, October 8th at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern for a presentation on marketing for the modern advisor with Megan Carpenter of FICOM. Earn one NAPFA CEU as you learn new ways to think about marketing your firm in today's digital landscape. I'm Johnny Swift of Impact Communications, a full-service marketing communications and PR firm that's been serving independent financial advisors and allied institutions since 1993. I'll be serving as the technician for this webinar series. And with that, I'd like to hand it over to Lisa. Awesome. Thanks, Johnny. And great to see the number of attendees climbing as we're rolling into the top of the hour. So for those of you who haven't joined us before for Insiders Forum, uh, I have the great pleasure of working with Sean Kapazinski to help develop content for the COO track. And so at the end of every conference, we sit down and think about, you know, what's important, what are folks thinking about, where are their challenges, where are their opportunities? And we found that we kept going back to Matt's podcast as a source of um, knowledge and inspiration for those kinds of topics. And so we had this grand idea of bringing Matt to Austin and having him record his podcast live from the main stage. It was going to be lots of show lights and fireworks and just all kinds of excitement. And so um, unfortunately, we're not in Austin, but we're so glad you're with us today here virtually. And I'm really excited for this Live with Matt as a one-off um, Insiders Forum session as well. And so proud and excited to see my friends Kaylin and Karen participating in this. And I'm super excited to hear what they have to say. So if you haven't listened to Matt's other podcasts, I really suggest you subscribe, download, and go back and start at episode one, listen to all of them, um, and uh, enjoy the session today. So thanks, Matt. Take it away. All right. Thank you, Lisa, for the introduction. And uh, thank you again for allowing us to do this live version of the COO Roundtable podcast. Um, for those of you not familiar, um, we produce this podcast monthly, um, obviously called the COO Roundtable. I interview two or sometimes three operations professionals. They don't always have the specific COO title, but we discuss topics um, around this concept of professional management for RIAs. And I believe there's a big gap in our industry where it comes to the business side of our of our organizations. Even RIAs that have reached that elusive 1 billion uh, AUM mark, many times at their core, they simply are just four or five advisors under one common logo that are really going in four or five different directions. Um, so when, when advisors leave the wirehouses or the IBD channels to start RIAs, I think they often struggle with making that mental shift of I am a financial advisor to I am the owner of a financial advisory business. And even when you speak to RAs that are 15 or 20 years old, oftentimes you get the sense that the owner really identifies as a financial advisor first and a business owner second. And, and that's fine. Um, they really should be focused on their clients and prospects. That's the best use of their time. But in order to, to do that successfully, they need to commit to bringing on professional management, whether that's the COO title or whatever title they wanna give that individual. So our podcast is dedicated to highlighting um, RI executives that are playing this role and are in charge of running the business rather than bringing in clients. As a former COO of a multi-billion dollar RA myself, 
I'm very sensitive to the common theme in our industry that if you aren't bringing in clients, you are expendable and therefore not very valuable to the organization. So with this podcast, I try to highlight all the incredible work that these professional managers are doing on a day-to-day basis, whether that's uh, designing a proper organizational chart that details everyone's roles and responsibilities, or managing vendor relationships and tackling the difficult task of integrating various systems that make up the RA's back office, or just executing the strategy that the owner has laid out. Um, It's an incredibly important role and one that I believe, and again, I'm totally biased, but I believe it's vital to the growth of RIAs. So without further ado, I wanna get started with with this uh, interview. We have um, two unbelievably impressive guests. We have Kaylin Melia from, uh, she's the Chief Operating Officer at Socius Family Office in Fort Lauderdale, and Karen Denise, the Senior Director in Charge of Client Service at Cap Trust in North Carolina. And as you'll see, both are extremely knowledgeable in all areas of professional management. So we're gonna jump right in with, with uh, our questions here. Um, Kaylin, I'm gonna go to you first. Why don't you give us an overview of Socius Family Office? Sure. Thanks, Matt. I'm really happy to be a guest on the podcast today. I've always been a listener and I've taken a lot away from your uh, different episodes. Um, So I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Socius Family Office. Uh, We are a multifamily office. We manage around 550 million in assets under management. Um, We serve about 100 different client families and we have two offices. I'm located in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and we have a second office outside of Pittsburgh. Um, We have four advisors and 10 employees total, and we are an employee-owned firm. Um, I would say what's unique about our firm is our client demographic. Um, The founder of our firm and our uh, president were both professional athletes in the uh, NFL. So probably about two-thirds of our clients are young professional athletes in their 20s and 30s. And I would say the remaining third of our client base are um, successful entrepreneurs that have built very valuable um, operating businesses. And many of them have have experienced a liquidity event that has introduced them into significant wealth. Um, But all of our clients share a couple things. Um, Complexity is one. Um, Their needs extend beyond a lot of the traditional investment management needs um, that encompass financial planning, um, unique reporting. Many of them need uh, bill pay for their personal needs. They oversee and um, operate in many different legal entities, sometimes more than 20. Uh, And they really need a lot of oversight and administration of their overall financial life. Um, Historically, our firm has grown 100% organically. Um, Our operations team, in my opinion, does a lot. We do a lot of volume for the number of people that we have. Um, But in the future, we're hoping to expand and build upon our technology strategy um, to help us scale as a business, to help continue that um, organic growth and maybe um, attract additional advisory teams as well. That's great. And Karen, CapTrust is a big name in the industry. Uh, Most viewers probably have have at least heard of it, but why don't you give us a a background of of the firm? Sure. And thank you for having us, Matt. And I agree with Kaylin that I'm a fan of your podcast, and I I really wish we'd been there in person to hear about these fireworks and other pyrotechnics that Lisa is promising. So um, unfortunately, we probably won't be as exciting as that, but we'll we'll try our best. So um, so Cap Trust was founded in 1997 by Fielding Miller and his then partner, David Perkins, who has went on to create Harris Investment Partners. 
And he had a roughly 11 advisors that came from a group called Interstate Johnson Lane that formed the company. And a large part of our business is focused on foundations and institutional retirement plans. And, but we have a very large, what we'll call private wealth group, which is the group that I'm a part of and super excited about it. Uh, we have grown over the years quite a bit. We have, are around roughly 400 billion in assets under management. A good portion of that is on that institutional re retirement plan side of things, but we have roughly around 18 billion in the individual wealth management IA client side. And we have around 721 employees across 32 locations um, across the country. And our ideal client is someone in the two to $20 million range. Similar to Kaylin, we have a, a large focus on financial planning. We have a lot of executives from the retirement plans that we work with. They are, um, have been such great fans of what our investment advisory services have been on that side. They have joined over and, and allowed us the opportunity to manage their individual wealth assets. We also work with a good number of professional athlete clients as well as inherited wealth clients. And um, a lot of our growth has been due to acquisitions over the years. Great. Um, so Karen, you had five, looking at LinkedIn, uh, you had five years at Wachovia before you joined CapTrust 16 years ago. You've had seven different positions there. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you wound up in your current role as Senior Director Wealth Client Service. Sure thing. Um, so I joined CapTrust, as, as Matt said, about 16 years ago after working for the artist formerly known as Wachovia Bank. Um, now I believe it's, well, it's all part of Wells Fargo, but at the time I worked with Wachovia Bank's personal trust and their investment management division and learned a lot about personal trusts and estate settlement and a lot of just the complex issues that come across clients' lives in their financial journey. So I started CapTrust actually as a client service representative working with private wealth clients. And I was working with the clients of our CEO, Fielding Miller. And we were much smaller back then. We were around 40 employees, which was great um, in a lot of ways. We were very nimble. You could get decisions pretty quickly by just standing up and asking someone for their opinion on things. Um, and it's, it's just been really awesome and a lot of fun just can, you know, being a part of that growth over the years. And building was really great. Even back then, he, you know, always has this entrepreneurial mindset. And so what that means is he has given every employee in our firm an opportunity to say, okay, if there's a way that you could think of how to do things differently, propose that to me and we'll see how it goes. And so, so I did that and he was very kind and must have liked what he saw. I, I think back to the probably rudimentary PowerPoint presentation I put together probably about 14 years ago and would probably cringe if I saw how, how basic it was today. But, you know, I was just really fortunate that he allowed me to move on from the client service role, having management opportunities in client service, then in our operations side of the business. Then we started to kind of ramp up a little bit more in um, having firms join us. And as we started to do that, there was an individual that needed to kind of speak to the operations side and the client service side. And so I was lucky enough to wear that hat. And as I mentioned, our growth has happened, especially in the past few years, we've brought on a lot of new firms. And as you can imagine, every time you bring on a new firm, you're bringing on new wealth advisors. 
as well as wealth service staff. And so we're, we're really unique, I think, in the way that we try to maintain as much of that contact with the client as um, people join us and so they're not having a change in working with teams. And so as you can imagine, as every new firm brings on new client service individuals, the wealth client service group is growing exponentially. So I was super lucky about a year ago to ask to come head up the wealth client services group. And since my career started out on the service side, I'd, I'd love to think that I have a heart for service. And really, I think that that's, that's helped me out a lot along the way. That's great. We're going to, we're going to touch on the speaking up and explaining how, how I think we can do things differently. We're going to touch on that in one second, but I want to go to Kaylin first. Um, looking at LinkedIn for you, I saw you had several roles over seven, a seven and a half year stint at Pershing before you joined uh, Socius. So give us a little bit of your background. Sure. Um, so I earned my undergraduate degree at Stetson. I have to give the Hatters a shout out. Um, so I did my undergraduate in Deland, Florida. And like many people, I think in our industry, I just kind of fell into financial services. It wasn't necessarily intentional. Um, but um, 2009 was an interesting time to be to start a career in financial services, but that's what happened. Um, so I started at Pershing on the, the custody side, the clearing side, um, in the mutual fund omnibus group in an operational role. And I was reconciling mutual funds and calculating contingent deferred sales charges. Um, and I was in that role for a couple of years. And then from there, I applied to what's called the corporate training program. Um, and it was a wonderful um, developmental training program that Pershing ran from probably the late 80s up until about four years ago. Um, and they, over the course of two, probably two and a half years, I just rotated through every part of Pershing's business, learning about what they do just a great overall learning experience for me because I got exposure to so many people in so many areas of what Pershing did. Um, and at the end of that program, they allowed me to choose a role in a department that interested me. Um, and during the course of my rotations, I had gravitated toward the RIA side of the business, you know, recognizing um, the trend toward that side of the business for advisors and um, the growth that had happened there. Um, so I took on a role as an account manager in Pershing Advisor Solutions, and I was in that role for about three and a half years. Um, and Socius was one of my clients while I was an account manager. And um, that's how I learned that they were hiring for a chief, um, chief operator. And um, I had enjoyed the interactions that they had, and then I knew they were um, I love the team here and I um, knew they were a growing firm. So that's how I ended up here and here I am three years later. That's great. So this is, that's always my, my favorite question to ask is just how everybody kind of zigged and zagged. And so on a, on a previous podcast interview, Eric Heyman of Austin Asset told the story of how he went from, he was an unpaid intern, he became COO and now he's CEO, and that's the position he holds today. It's the only firm he's ever worked at. Um, similarly, I just read recently CityWire did a profile of Adam Bierenbaum at Buckingham. Uh, Adam told a similar story. Over a 10-year period, he went from intern to CEO. And in the article, he said, I've had every operational role and responsibility you could possibly have. I've always said I've had every job in this place except for being a wealth advisor. And then just this morning, I haven't even had a chance to read this article, but I saw the headline go by this morning in uh, CityWire. Uh, no, sorry, it was, it was RIA Intel. Um, headline said, Mercer Advisors' 
Dave Welling was never an advisor. Does that make him the perfect RIA CEO? They all have similar stories and, and very similar to what Karen said. What Eric said on our podcast is you have to take it upon yourself to find something at the firm that you care about more than anyone else. You just have to have the guts to speak up and say, I care about this, whatever it is. I think in his case, it was QuickBooks. <laughs> he says, I became the QuickBooks expert. So all of that prompted me to write a recent wealthmanagement.com article that was titled The Path to RIA Ownership Through the Operations Channel. Channel. Because typically in this industry, the ownership of RIAs is reserved only for advisors who are bringing in the clients. But as our industry is maturing and we're seeing more and more importance being placed on professional management, we are seeing owners now who are holding operations positions. And, and as a operations nerd, <laughs> I'm very excited about all of this. So you both have achieved leadership positions at very large RIAs through the operations channel. Um, but you've also uh, done this obviously as women. So that's exciting in, in and of itself. So I want to ask, what is your secret and how have you pulled all of this off? So Caitlin, I'll go to you first and just, mm -hmm. just a little bit of uh, a career advice, so to speak. Sure. Um, so I don't know if I necessarily have a secret sauce, but I, I certainly have some things that I've tried to do along the way. Um, the first is I just try to ask why a lot. I mean, generally I ask a lot of questions in general. Um, but I, I feel like there um, is a lot of tradition associated with our industry, um, but sometimes it doesn't just hurt to ask why. Um, does reporting have to be quarterly? If so, why? Um, does a financial plan really need to be written? If so, why? Does that make sense anymore? Um, so just constantly questioning the way that things are done. Is there a better way to do it? Um, another thing I try to remember is that small wins can add up. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a huge idea or a big change to your strategy because little things that you, you know, achieve along the way can make a difference. And just to give you a, you know, a silly example, um, I try to think of the things that are not value add that people spend a lot of time working on in operations. And I noticed all the time people on my team were spending shredding paper, <laughs> putting paper the shredder and I just said I can't listen to the shredder one more day that's just such a waste of time and so now we have the bins where they just throw the paper in there and they move about their day and they've gained 15 minutes of their day back so just little things like that that can add up that can add value to your client that allow you to spend more time interacting with the client um, another thing is I try not to let the answer be no and if the answer has to be no have you really exhausted your resources? Have you tried to come up with a creative example, uh, solution instead? I remember um, during my, my tenure at Pershing, um, there was an email chain where I had replied to my manager and the people on my team with basically a complaint about the way we did something. And my manager replied back to me and basically said, that's not a solution. <laughs> And I was upset because I was very embarrassed in that moment that he had replied to everybody on my team with um, basically pointing out that I had voiced a complaint, but it was a good learning experience for me to not um, just raise a complaint, but to come up with a solution to something that I see as problematic instead. Yep, I've, I've tried to, when I've had to say no, I try to say, I can't give you what you want, but I can give you this. And that's 80% of what you're asking for or whatever. I try to acknowledge that, well, I am saying no, but. <laughs> so right. I like that. I like that a lot. And even, even just um, the effort that you've attempted to come up with a different solution, I think is transparent to people, both internally and externally. Um, 
And finally, I think um, try not to turn down opportunities, even if you don't feel like you're ready for it. Um, I've, I've witnessed a number of people who have turned down an opportunity for whatever reason. Um, you know, they didn't feel ready or they weren't prepared for the challenge. And it can be difficult, I think, to come back from saying no, um, because you may not get the opportunity again. That's great. I love all of that. Um, Karen, I'll throw it to you. Great. Yeah. Um, so when I was at Wachovia, my last role was kind of like a junior investment advisor, like an apprentice, and I enjoyed it. But I started to learn over time that sales probably wasn't my forte. And it, it's so funny listening to Kaylin speak because we didn't compare notes, but a lot of the things that I have in mind are, are, are similar things that she has as well. Um, you know, some advice I would give that I think has, has been fortunate and served me well is, you know, don't be afraid to dig in, you know, similarly to kind of like what Kaylin was saying, that means ask a lot of questions. And so sometimes an advisor may spring a question on you and you just, if you take it at surface value, then you may go get just the answer for that. But if you dig in a little bit more, sometimes you find out the true what of what's going on. So if a client may be asking a pretty straightforward question, but if you probe a few more questions through, you can find out, okay, this is really what their, their heart is with. This is where their concern is coming from. And so I would agree wholeheartedly with Kaylin, ask lots of questions. Um, you know, it's just gonna have, it's gonna benefit you in the long run. It'll help you be able to kind of come back with the most educated solution that you can. Um, I think operations people naturally have a sense of curiosity. And I think, you know, um, you know, they, they love to solve problems. You know, I think everyone can say that that's what they want to do. But I think operations people in particular, they also probably like to solve puzzles. So, you know, when you were talking about you were an operations geek, Matt, I can totally relate to you 100% because I think a lot of the stuff that when I've gone to conferences and I've listened to materials, I'm like, oh, this is so fascinating. It might not be the most appealing to a lot of the advisors, but it's still important because it ultimately affects the end client. And so, you know, um, some other advice I would say is don't limit your thinking to your current role. So a lot of times people can answer a question and it's going to get a solution for one part of something, but if you keep the big picture in mind, it's going to help out so much more. So a lot of times there'll be issues that come our way and it might be focused on solving for X. But if we solve for X, that may cause issues with performance reporting or billing or something else that has a trickle down effect for the client. So I would say keep an open mind and think of a lot of different perspectives. And then finally, I would say, you know, always keep the end client in mind. Um, it's something that I have benefited from actually working on the service side of things. And the people I think that in our firm that work the best are the people that keep that in mind. Sometimes if you get too focused on the X's and O's and completing different um, requests for folks and you, you get away from that human element. And so a lot of times an advisor isn't just asking a question for the, for the sake of asking a question. Chances are the client has asked them something that's that spurred them to ask that question. So as long as you keep that in the forefront and you know that, hey, I'm trying to find the best solution for this client, similar to what you and Kaylin were saying, even if it isn't exactly what you wanted, if you can kind of keep all those things in mind, I think usually you can kind of develop a reputation of being someone that really is client-centric and is looking to help solve issues for clients. That's great. So we've talked about the size and complexity of your firms. I'm curious, 
what challenges your firm's unique service offerings have brought to your to your specific roles. Um, so, Kaylin, I've talked on on many podcasts. I believe the term family office is massively overused in our industry today. Um, there's a lot of RIAs calling themselves family offices, and when you when you push them a little bit and say, "Well, what is, what family office services? What does that mean to you? What does it mean that you're a family office?" Literally, I've gotten the answer. Well, I give my cell phone to my clients. They can reach me at all hours. They can reach me on the weekends. I'm very high touch. That makes me a family office. And I say, mm, <laughs> I think you're confusing <laughs> a, a great client service with family office. But I know Socius Family Office is a true family office. So can you speak to some of the unique services? You, you, you talked a little bit at the, at the top of the hour, but a little bit of the unique uh, service offerings that you are, uh, the services that you offer and, and how that trickles into your role as COO. Yeah. So, Matt, I'm glad to hear that family office is synonymous with, with good service, because I guess that's that's the plus. Um, and I also would not fully recommend handing your cell phone number out to all clients. That's a slippery, very difficult to come back from once you do it. Um, but in any case, you're correct. Um, the, the widespread use of family office is not, is not a term that is, um, you know, there's no compliance requirement on what when you can use a family office and what the definition of that is. Um, so it makes it difficult for even you know astute consumers to understand what a family office actually does and whether or not they even need a family office. Um, so for me, I, I the questions that come to mind are one: um, Is the firm running on a true two-sided general ledger? Um, that. Uh, typically something you would need to deledver the level of reporting for clients that desire family office services um, and and by that I mean are you able to produce true financials in the form of a balance sheet an income statement a statement of cash flows um, that type of complexity and the ability to track liabilities and assets on the level that's required really does need that piece of technology as part of your tech stack as a family office. And then the second question I usually ask is, are you a custody-based model? Um, custody for many firms is something RAs don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole um, for a couple of reasons. It introduces um, additional expense with insurance. Um, there's additional risk associated with it. But for us, it's very central to uh, the service that we provide for our clients. Um, we actually are set up as limited power of attorney on bank accounts for our clients, and that allows us to take in their mail and track their income and pay their bills. And all of that data for us ends up on our general ledger system that allows us to generate that um, special reporting um, that they desire. So for my role, you know, some additional um, complexity that it introduces, one for staffing. So the breadth of what we do as a family office is wider than many REA firms because in addition to you know exposure to financial services to portfolio accounting um, you also need expertise with accounting and bookkeeping um, so that presents additional challenges and then the second would be the technology piece so every REA firm wants all of their technology to talk to each other you want your portfolio accounting tech to talk to your CRM to talk to your financial planning maybe integrate with your third-party trading tool if you have one um, and with the family office we have the added um, complexity of throwing a general ledger into the mix so we want all of that to talk to each other and we want all of our data in a really because for many of our clients 
um, their main desire is the administration and organization of all of that information. And then for a readily um, easy to read report that helps them understand it all. Great. And Karen, we've, we've already talked about CapTrust's massive inorganic growth strategy. Um, so you're constantly onboarding new advisors. Uh, in your role, heading up client service and operations, how do you integrate these advisors into the firm as quickly and as seamlessly as possible? Yeah, so we've been partnering with firms probably since, let's say more officially since probably like 2006. And so we've, we've there's, I wouldn't say that there hasn't been anything that's come across that we haven't seen before because there's always some surprises. But for the most part, the, the main big rocks are things that we have seen before from, from different firms. And so we're lucky that we've got a really excellent team that has the sole focus of helping new firms that join us get integrated into CapTrust as quickly as possible. Um, these are people that have worn different hats at CapTrust previously. We have people that have experience with billing, we have people that worked in our trading department. We have people that worked um, in kind of our advisor support side of things. And so each one of these individuals brings a unique skill to the table. But what they have, they don't have any, they don't have an easy task. So what they have to do is they have to blend getting the technical and the personal together. So the first, I'd say three months probably are really focused on data and you know that might mean if there are clients that have accounts at a custodian that we have if how do we get those accounts moved over to the cap trust umbrella in the best case scenario it's a consent process where the client can either positively or negative consent and they either sign a form or by not signing the form that they negatively consent to moving over and we can work behind the scenes but um, you know that's the big focus is on trying to make it as little disruption as possible to the clients. And so having a team that has done this time and time again, they can really focus on that. And then that allows for the advisors and the, the support staff to really focus on reaching out to the clients, explaining to them why they think this move is a good thing for not just them, but also in turn for in clients. And so you know that that data some advice i would give on that if, if anyone is ever thinking about in the future partnering with someone is my number one bit of advice would be to get your data as tight as possible as soon as you can um it's we've had situations where it's it's rare that the firms that join us have the exact same systems that we have meaning the same crm system same performance reporting the same trading systems and so that's understandable. Um, luckily, our team has worked really well with different firms, and we also have a pretty uh, expanded application development team that does a lot of uh, programming behind the scenes to make sure this all happens, as well as working with all of our vendor partners. But we've also had firms that don't have a CRM system. You know, maybe they have an Excel spreadsheet, or maybe they don't have anything. And so, you know, trying to get that information imported, exported out, imported into our systems. That takes just a lot of time and then when you throw performance reporting in the mix and trying to get historical data transferred over you know it's it's something that i think people just need to be aware of it's a process and we're lucky that we've got people that are pros at this and can help with it behind the scenes but as much as you can do ahead of time to make sure that data is really tight it's just going to make it easier for you and the people that you're working with because you know what we've seen is that once 
firms are six to 12 months in, they're kind of on the other side of things. They can really start to see the traction and see a lot of the benefits to joining Cap Trust. But honestly, the first three months, you're just focused on your clients. You're just focused on the messaging you're trying to give to them and make sure that they feel like this is as seamless as possible. And luckily we're able to do that. So we would, one thing I would just share with folks is that it's very psychological um, for these principles of the firm that join us. Because if you think about it, you know, they've built this, they have, they've, they've been successful on their own before joining Cap Trust. And, you know, I don't say this in a negative way. There's a lot of natural ego tied to that. You know, you built up your business and you care about your clients and you care about your employees. And so, you know, there's change with that. And so CapTrust really focuses on trying to find really good cultural matches to join us. And if that usually works out wonderfully, but even the best of us, you know, change is difficult. And so if we can keep folks focused on, okay, keep it focused on your clients, we minimize that disruption for them. And you just kind of focus on bringing, making sure all of that, those clients are happy we'll take care of all the other items. And so it's just natural to have some trepidation with that. And, and given the amount of M&A activity that's taking place in our industry, I, I speak to operations folks all the time about how to position their firm as an effective buyer and how to make themselves as attractive as possible to advisors that, that are, you know, they have so many choices right now where, what to choose for a landing spot. Um, and my conversations, I'm, again, I'm always talking with the operations folks, so we don't really get into the deal structure or the valuation. Obviously, that's all very important, but I truly believe that to be a successful buyer, and again, I'm biased with this operations mindset, but I think you need to have a full, fully built out platform or an infrastructure that would excite advisors and make them realize that they're going to grow a lot faster with you than if they try to slog along uh, on their own. So Karen, can you talk about your role in the M&A piece of CapTrust growth? Sure, um, as I mentioned earlier, I've been really lucky. I've been able to wear a lot of hats at CapTrust over the years. And, and part of that has allowed me to be a part of um, conversations in making sure we centralize a lot of functions. So that could mean human resources, that might mean compliance, that may mean marketing, investment research, billing, others. Um, with 720 employees, you can imagine to be able to make that scalable, we can't have every office kind of doing their own thing because otherwise it becomes this patchwork quilt and, you know, clients could be getting inconsistent experiences. And so we found, Matt, that often that's something that's really attractive to these principals that join us. So think about it. As I mentioned earlier, they've been wearing all these different hats for many years. So not only are they oftentimes the, the rainmakers who are bringing in you know, a good portion of their business or they're coaching up junior advisors to do that, but they also have to be involved in a lot of decisions as far as HR and finance and marketing. And so they've got to be jack of all trades. And there's probably a time where they really enjoyed that. But often when we're talking to people, you know, they're, they've gotten to a place where they want to just get back to why they got into the business in the first place focusing on their current clients and bringing in new business and bringing in new relationships. And so by taking that centralization and saying, okay, you're, you're going to be outsourcing and internally to cap trust. You don't have to worry about those decisions. We've, we've got the infrastructure. We've got the chassis. We've, we've been doing this for many years and we've been doing it for a lot of firms that have joined us. 
And so by providing that, that we often see that gives a lot of relief for advisors. And so it, it some, takes some change. And luckily, Captrist is really awesome in that we're open to new ideas. So we'll say, hey, if you've got something that's worked really well for your clients, we're a very collaborative firm. Tell us what's worked for your clients, because chances are that's going to work for ours, too. So, um, but the centralization is really important. And we've taken it a little bit further in that we've centralized our new account opening, our account transfers, our portfolio accounting, as well as the execution of our trades. And, you know, we've just had to do it for a number of reasons, but some of it was just that you're starting to get all of these different people across the country and at different levels of experience. And we would start to see early on, probably back in 2008 is when we really started centralizing some functions. We started seeing, okay, there were more trade errors or there were more NIGOs because you just had, as I mentioned, different varying levels of experience and you know strengths of people. And so by taking those certain functions that we could say, all right, we're gonna have certain people to just become experts in this. And this is what they're gonna do all day long. And we can have, that's gonna free up the time for the client service folks that typically wear a lot of these hats in these firms and have to juggle a lot of balls. You know, it gives them more capacity and more time to focus on the end client. And in turn, that gives the advisor more time and capacity to bring in new business. The more the client service folks can focus on existing clients, the advisors can, can go out there and, and really uh, work on business development. So, and selfishly by centralizing the new accounts, the account transfer side of things, not only does that allow us to be able to effectively manage the accounts sooner because we've got people that are doing this day in and day out and they know where the pitfalls are and they know how to work with the custodians to make sure those get opened, those accounts get open and funded as quickly as possible. But selfishly, we get paid a lot quicker. The sooner we can get those assets in, that's when we can start billing. And so it's, um, it's it, from a business standpoint, being able to speed up that collection of revenue has been really helpful for us. Um, one thing I'll mention is that on some occasions, there may be some initial natural reluctance to kind of adopt our centralized investment research. No surprise here, a lot of times advisors get into this business because they like to pick investments. So it's something that, you know, and, and they've done really well at it. And, you know, we, we get that. And again, as we mentioned, we've really done a great job of bringing in awesome partners, you know, that have, some of them have kind of stayed the financial advisor path. We've had some people that kind of enjoyed, joined our investment management group because they were just so good at it and they could bring strengths to the table that, uh, we felt like our clients could really benefit from. So, you know, this could be potentially the toughest change for advisors. And we, we recognize that. And so what we try to say is we understand that there may have been a, have been a philosophy or a strategy that's been really unique to your firm. And you've been sharing that with your clients for many years because you've kind of felt like that was the best, best course of action. Like we said, we're open to talking about some of those strategies. But when we do feel like there's some scale that can be created, and just the fact that we have over 30 dedicated investment analysts that all they do all day long is they perform due diligence on separate account managers or mutual fund managers or equity and fixed income strategies. They're doing that all day long. And so chances are they're gonna have some intel that's probably gonna be a little bit better than what you or I can provide. And so by having those advisors really turn those reins over over time. Um, it's something where we feel that it can be a very profitable experience for the firm. 
as well as from just an opportunity cost, it gives the advisor so much more time that they're not having to focus on that investment research. So um, it's something that we obviously don't come in day one and say, okay, we're going to blow up all your investments and, you know, everything that you've done so far is, you know, we're changing all of that. Um, it's something we try to provide a flexibility within a framework. So we have different strategies that we communicate to our advisors and our support staff. And where it makes sense, we would ask our advisors over time to start employing those strategies. So let's say you've got a brand new client that has never been on a previous strategy. That might be a great opportunity to start weaving in our strategies. Also, when there's some tax advantage opportunities, when you're not worrying about gains, so maybe you've got some time where you've had a lot of losses, that might be an opportunity to start slowly segueing into some of our research strategies. So it's definitely more art than science, but we're really careful that we try not to push anything before the client or the advisor is ready. So we've got a great team that's super sensitive to that. And they just really, by keeping again, that end client in mind, we're able to find some success there. Um, the one other thing I would add is that it's, it's not just about that investment research. It's also about how do you deliver that investment research out to the field. So as I mentioned, we've got a lot of advisors. And so the challenge is, is okay, we've got all this really great institutional knowledge. How do we get that out to the universe so that they can give that out to their clients? And we've got a fantastic marketing team that has built out a really wonderful platform of market thought videos, as well as webinars and even podcasts. And so in the back in the old days, we would have a quarterly meeting where all of our advisors would fly in and we would have all of our investment research team share the best and brightest news. Well, times have changed and, and so has Cat Trust. And so we've actually recently built out a really awesome state of the art uh, sound studio in our headquarters here in Raleigh, North Carolina. But prior to that, we were recording a lot of that information and, you know, just being able to have that channel for the advisors to either send a market thought video to their clients or they can sign up for essentially like an email distribution list whenever our chief uh, investment officer has some market thoughts on what's going on with the election, we can distribute that out. And so there's a lot of touches where the advisors don't have to stop and think to do something. But also, if I'm an advisor and I'm on the road, I can listen to a podcast of some of these different things. And that way, you know, I'm not having to dedicate time where I'm having to come fly in somewhere and listen to a lot of information. So um, our advisors have really loved those capabilities and we're super excited to continue to build that out. I mean, again, I'm, I'm operationally minded, uh, so it's easier said than done, but I think for, for there to be success culturally, the advisor that's joining the larger organization really has to come into it with the mindset of let me look at all the areas that are going to provide me growth not let me look at all the areas just right off the bat if they're already looking for it let me look at all the areas that are going to change things for me i don't want i want to i want to join a larger but i don't want any change no change <laughs> uh yeah. it is it, very difficult so that's great so kaylin you you've talked about historically it, it's always been organic growth for you guys do you have any uh, visions in the in the near future that you're going to flip a switch and, and, and look for inorganic growth? Yeah, I certainly think we'd be interested in, in inorganic growth in the future. You know, Karen kind of mentioned some of the 
um, signs that start to crop up when you realize that you really have a need for centralizing and for changing the way that you do some of your some of the things that you do. And I think we're definitely at that inflection point. Um, over the past year and a half, we've made some significant effort to retire some antiquated processes and try and centralize things. Um, put a lot more consistency around how we serve a lot of our clients because a lot of them were getting different deliverables, which not only becomes really difficult to manage, but um, why does one client have a report that doesn't look the same as something somebody else has? So I think we'd like to continue to build upon that to finish um, integrating all of the technology projects that we are working on. And I think once we finish all of that, we're, we're going to have, you know, a compelling platform that advisors would be interested in joining because like you said that everyone wants to know what's in it for me. Um, so, you know, to, to, to answer that and to um, convince them on, on why your firm is valuable, you need to be able to show them something compelling like that. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, there, there definitely has to be a lot of buyers out there say, well, we'll figure it out together. Well, if we get here first and we'll figure it out. And I just think it's way too competitive right now. There's gotta be that platform and that infrastructure mm -hmm. that you can really prove in the uh in the in the early phases so um that's great um so i want to switch gears a little bit that was really inorganic growth that we talked about now i want to talk about organic growth um as i said at the at the top of the hour most ra owners are advisors who are really tasked with bringing in clients and growing the firm's assets under management that's really their their main task and i think those of us on the operations side we all have jobs <laughs> because someone needs to be thinking about uh, top while the advisors are thinking about top line growth, someone needs to be thinking about bottom line profitability. And so the operations folks need to, need to be asking the question, how can we get the firm to service these clients in a profitable fashion? Um, there's always that natural friction that exists between the advisors who say, let's bring in every single client and the operations folks that, that need to push back from time to time and say, this is not a good client for us. We can't serve this client or this, this business line in a profitable fashion. Um, either this person or, or, or business line is requiring too many resources, or even maybe it's they're presenting too, too, too much risk for a costly trade error. This is just isn't the type of trading that we do here at this, at this firm. So mm -hmm. Karen, I'll, I'll go to you first. Um, how do you balance that friction between top line revenue and bottom line profitability? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, I think it's a classic scenario. You know, oftentimes, you know, advisors will either present they'll be presented with a client and you kind of mentioned this that maybe is a smaller client than the size that we would go for and oftentimes there's really good reasons for it you know sometimes it's okay this client has additional assets elsewhere and we're trying to get our foot in the door sometimes it's just the the pastor or the rabbi or somebody that someone knows and you know or a neighbor and you're just trying to do a favor and so you know we, we recognize that that happens you know we've got centers of influences that you know perhaps their actual revenue isn't going to produce a lot but just that relationship is, is going to be able to produce dividends for us and so you know when that becomes kind of frequent you know from someone on the service side and the operations side you know oftentimes those smaller clients require just as much not more work sometimes behind the scenes than, than court clients that provide us a little bit more value and so We've, like a lot of folks, we've kind of developed a payout structure that really incentivizes our advisors to focus on accounts where there's a sweet spot for our profitability. Uh, we've, we've seen that it gives some flexibility to what they can bring in, but it also it 
does make them scrutinize things a little bit, meaning, you know, they, they think long and hard about, okay, is this the right fit? Am I going to be able to deliver the kind of capture service for this level of client based on all the other factors involved? And so, you know, as we mentioned too, smaller accounts are often the case that happens there. So an additional solution that we have is, is we have a dedicated small account advisor, so to speak. And so um, it's one gentleman today who's awesome. He's been with Captris for several years. And he essentially focuses on the smaller relationships that the, the advisors, oftentimes it might be legacy advisors that have been with us for a while, but often it's it's firms that join us and they're like, hey, listen, I've got all these small relationships and you know they they're not as profitable as some of these larger ones. And it's not something where I want to spend a lot of my time on having an advisor that's focused solely on those small relationships is usually something really attractive. And we get around, you know, there's the natural way of people probably thinking like, oh, well, you're passing me on to somebody else. Well, what we typically do is we introduce that advisor as just another member of that advisor's team. And oftentimes there'll be, you know, on joint calls with that lead advisor for a while and on emails. And over time, the lead advisor will start to take a step away from that. But this small account advisor has, build out a really excellent service model for accounts that would be able to serve those smaller relationships. So it helps us to be a little bit more scalable in that there are specific investment models that we may use with less turnover. So if, you're, if you've got clients of a smaller size, sometimes investing them as frequently as we have for larger accounts actually is, is pretty detrimental to the client. So having them work with specific things that are tailored toward a smaller account balance is really helpful. He also has kind of scheduled service calls. So if you're a client of kind of a smaller client of a certain size, you get this number of service calls a year. If you're on the smaller side, maybe you know the maintenance can be taken care of because a lot of times, sometimes they're very simple accounts. It might be something that is a, a 529 plan or something along those lines that just may not require as much heavy lifting in, in as these larger relationships. So we've had a lot of success with that. And it's something that we're actually looking to see if we can have additional resources or if we can use some technology to be able to explore some self-service options there. But but it is it is something that's always on our mind for sure. And Caitlin, how do you approach this with this this goal of bringing on new assets, but doing it in an, an efficient and scalable fashion? Yeah. This is such a great question, and I feel like it's something so many firms struggle with. Um, and I feel like it's even more challenging for family office because of the breadth of what we do. We can get into a rabbit hole really quickly with the different things that our clients um, ask of us. Um, if two phrases I or questions I hear about family office are, if you've seen, seen a family office, you've seen one family office. And then the other is, do you walk dogs? Um, and the reason I up is because um, sometimes it's easier for us to tell clients up front what we um, because we do a lot and typically um, I find that it's better received when you're just clear about the things that you don't support. Um, so for us, for example, we stop short of concierge services. So things like you know booking travel and making reservations and things like that. We have partners we can introduce to clients or prospects that are interested in those kind of services, but we make sure that they understand that it's not something that we necessarily support in-house. But we can certainly um, make an introduction to, to somebody if that's something that they feel they need. Um, but for us, um, I think ensuring that we scale our business means that we have to get our fees right. 
Um, so like many firms, we charge an asset-based fee for investment management, but then for everything that we consider to be part of the family office offering, we have a retainer-based fee. And that retainer-based fee can be very different depending on the demographic of a client. You know, they could have three legal entities or they could have 25. And it's not fair for those two individuals to or households to have the same fee. Um, so, you know, we've we've learned um, sometimes the hard way that um, for many of these clients, sometimes we have to work for them for a couple of months before we can really determine what the appropriate cost of the service is. Um, but we tell them that upfront. We try and do as much um, investigation and data gathering as possible um, before we even engage them because um, we want to have as much information as we can so we know what type of work we're going to have to do. Um, for example, we have rebuilt books back to 2016 for one complex client that had no books. So you can imagine how much, you know, investigation um, and data rebuilding that was for our team. Um, and sometimes we have a client that has impeccable data records and they give us everything that we could possibly need to onboard them. So the level of effort that we have to put is drastically different. Um, but I think, you know, providing clients with a range um, of fee and saying, you know, we, we would like to work with you for a couple months and then tell you what the final um, retainer fee would be has been helpful. And I think it's really um, the fairest way to, to present that to the client and really the most transparent. So that has been something that we've discovered over the years to be really the best process for helping us, um, you know, determine the right fee for someone. Perfect. So the last question I'll throw out there, uh, it's, it's one I receive a lot from COOs and operations professionals. It's where can I go to get further education? If you want to be a better investor, you can go uh, pursue the CFA or on the alternative side, I know that the CAIA, um, if you want to be a better advisor, there's obviously the CFP or the CPWA designation. But if you want to learn how to operationally run a better RIA, where, where can we go? I always turn people to Mark Tabergian's book. I love the Enduring Advisory Firm. Um, I think that one's fantastic. But I wanted to ask both of you, where do you turn to get your continuing education? And Kaylin, I'll, I'll go to you first. Mm -hmm. I go to the COO podcast, obviously, Matt. <laughs> Check some mail. <laughs> Um, networking has been, you know, really important to me. Um, you know, thankfully, um, I have a, a great network of wonderful people at Pershing that have been able to introduce me to various people. Um, the HIFON network has been a wealth of information for me. Um, it's connected me to a number of different REAs, you know, across the country. Um, and I find everyone there is so helpful and willing to um, share information. And then I like to do a lot of reading. Um, it doesn't even have to be industry specific. Um, so, for example, uh, I recently read Ra Radical Candor by Kim Scott, who is a great read, highly recommend for anyone that just wants, you know, general uh, management uh, information and some help there. And then finally, just looking for opportunity to help others, which might sound a little counterintuitive, but I find that when you, you know, help others and are willing to give advice throughout your career, it, it's, it's karma. It always makes its way back to you. Um, so those are the things I try and do. I love it. Karen, what can, what can you recommend in this area? Yeah, um, similar to what Kaylin said, I'd say number one and create a, a network of people in similar roles. So whether you're at a conference and you find the name of an operations person, connect with them on LinkedIn, 
Um, also, the next leadership cohort that Lisa and Bill Dalton and others at Pershing have created, um, it's been wonderful for me. It's, it's where I get to connect with contemporaries like Kaylin and others in various roles at different RIAs. And, you know, we can share best practices and ideas, which is awesome. You know, there's, no, there's not a competitive environment at all. It really is a spirit of, okay, I've come across this. How did you guys kind of handle it? So we've had one-off conversations about workflows and how to build properly and, and how do you bonus out, how do you provide a bonus structure for your firm? So we've got a, a private LinkedIn page, but it's also not uncommon for somebody in the group to just shoot an email to everybody and say, hey, this has come up. And, and Lisa's wonderful in that she'll usually help moderate those and say, hey, let's get a call together for folks. But it really has been awesome because there's there's not a roadmap anywhere. And so I've, I've just enjoyed that network quite a bit and, and just really thankful to, to meet those great individuals. And, you know, a great book that Lisa actually recommended that I read recently was um, Traction, Get a Grip on Your Business by Gino Wickman. It talks a lot about creating an operating structure for your business and just how you determine those processes to create efficiency and profitability. So. Those are two unpaid plugs for Lisa, but um, but they're, they really are. Those have been very valuable for me, especially this year. That's great. That That is what, probably the number one question I get is where else can we go? So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, well, we're at, the, we're at the top of the hour or the bottom of the hour, I should say. So um, this has been a fantastic discussion. Uh, Karen and Kaylin, thank you so much. I know a lot of people have learned from your insights and, and your honest answers today. So thank, thank you both. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Matt. And then I wanted to thank Lisa again for inviting us to do this today. And you guys mentioned Sean, Sean Kapazinski at Hyphen also had a lot to do with giving us this opportunity. So Sean, thank you. And of course, Bob Barris, thank you for giving us a virtual stage. No fireworks today, but thank you for the virtual stage to speak from. And uh, we'll talk to all of you in podcast land. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Matt.